first Thursday of December already? How crazy is that? But it is that, in fact. And Springfield Mayor Jim Langfelder is here with the full hour with us. And Mayor, as always, we appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Appreciate the invite. We want to start with uh, something that has been going on this afternoon and will resume this evening. Public hearings uh, taking place down at the Springfield City Council Chambers pertaining to the uh, eventual uh, closure of the coal ash ponds that have caught a lot of the waste byproduct from decades of electric generation at City Water, Light, and Power. There are two basic options here to either leave the, the coal ash that's sitting there in, in place, coal ash, uh, and to permanently cover it, or to take everything out of there, remediate the site, and transport all of that toxic ash to another location. Uh, the utility uh, clearly has its preferred option of leaving it there, covering it. Uh, they say that in the short term, that's more environmentally friendly. It's also significantly less expensive to do it like that. Uh, but, but Mayor, there's a, a lot of concern. Environmental groups uh, and others saying, gosh, leaving that stuff just sitting there in these ponds where it could leach into the groundwater, it could pose other environmental risks. They say, that's a, a dangerous idea. Uh, I, I know you you uh, have uh, you know talked to the utility and you you are aware of all of this so uh, make the case here for what the utility is is thinking about doing right now well uh, they just introduced uh, Andrews consulting or Andrews engineering did the uh, research and the analysis of both options cap and place or like you said remove everything uh, what was interesting I thought that uh, there'd be closer in price. Originally, we thought it'd be like maybe $40 million. To remove, it's about $145 million. And then cap in place, which is probably, uh, I think, too um, positive of an estimate, $8 million. I think it'll be more than that, mm -hmm. um, because it depends on what the cap thickness is. And so, you want to make sure you do it correctly. So, I look for that number to go up slightly, but not, you know, uh, it won't cover that gap. Uh, but regardless, how do you pay for it is one, and then the environmental uh, situation. The cap in place, it's my understanding what they would do is drain the water out of the pond itself, and that sits upstream. So, uh, there would be no infiltration of water uh, that would move through the ash pond to, um, you know, leach into the groundwater once it's capped in place because it turns rock solid. And the whole key is how do you keep water from infiltrating that area? And so since it sits upstream, it's my understanding, I'm not the expert, it'd be good to have Andrews Engineering in here or Doug Brown, the experts, but it's my understanding the only way is if you had uh, the water level, the groundwater level reaching up that to that uh, level of the ash pond uh, to a significance where it infiltrates. So. But part of one of the reasons mm -hmm. they have to do this is, according to the presentation earlier today, mm -hmm. that the pond does not sit far enough from the, the high water mark of the aquifer, so that potentially it could be close enough, especially if we have you know, very heavy rains and the, the sorts of weather patterns that they say climate change could could produce, uh, I guess I could at least see theoretically where you could see that issue of the water levels getting that high again. I, I, are, are we getting guarantees from the engineering firm or anybody else that that, that can't happen? Well, I think uh, what I've learned since being mayor, there's no guarantees as, as far as that goes. So what you'd want to do, they do uh, modeling, and uh, I haven't seen that specific model as far as if you, once you cap it in place, uh, what's the life likelihood of it raising to that level is it a 90 per, or is it a 90% chance it doesn't or what is that um, that's one out and then if it does uh, what's the odds of it actually um, 
leaching in, you know, because if it's rock solid, uh, what would it take to actually leach in? If it's only risen up for a day or two, does it, you know, that comes with the modeling. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, though, is the removal. And, uh, you know, I didn't even think of this. Once you remove it, you're disturbing the ground in itself. How do you get it all out of there? And then wherever you take it, they're going to have the same issue. You know, you're taking it to wherever. How are you going to protect that environment that you're trucking it to? And then trucking it along the way, how are you going to protect it? Make sure that it stays intact with the truck in itself and not tracking the ash. And that has been brought up in the hearing today. So it's very challenging without a doubt. What you want to do is do the least, least uh, mitigating, um, or you want to make sure you have the uh, keep in place whatever option you choose, the uh, one that will um, have the least amount of impact to the environment as possible. So, what will, you know, and that, and the other factor is, okay. 20 or 30 years from now, 50 years from now, what's it going to, you know, what could happen? And that's because what we we're looking to, at. We have to monitor this for, for, for decades years, to come. Right. Yeah. For 30 years. And if we cap in place, that's right. definitely. And even if you transport it, you're going to have to monitor it as well. For, for a smaller period mm-hmm. of time. Right. But we're still going to be burning coal. Even if mm-hmm. this is approved, we start this process and they said we would wind up closing down these coal ash ponds, I believe by, by 2030 was the idea that it'd be, they'd be closed down. But we're going to still be burning coal even after that. What do we do with all of that by byproduct waste. Well, Dolman Four, that's uh, stored at the mines. That's okay. where that's at. You know, it's the uh, so Dolman uh, Four waste right. has never gone to the coal ash. Pumps. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, that's just for 31, 32, and 33. Okay. Since we're taking them offline, uh, now we can move forward with closing the uh, ash ponds. Uh, I, I'm sure I know your answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway, because, again, the utility has made it clear it prefers the far less expensive uh, capping option to the far more expensive removal option. But they also say that, you know, these hearings that are being held today, they're required. Uh, they will you know take all of this into consideration. How seriously will that input actually be considered here? We know environmental groups like the Sierra Club are, are out there very outspoken against this. Is that really going to move the meter at all, or are we just going to see the utility say, "This is this is still our plan, and we're and we're going to go ahead and proceed with the permit application just to to leave it there and cap it"? Well, I think with the large differential, uh, it's definitely uh, weighing in the favor of capping it. But again, we will take into consideration all the concerns and how do you mitigate those? Um, you know, again, you know, you say you're capping. I think it was like um, I'm trying to think of the milli. Uh, I think it was like 20 milliliters or something of the cap, but uh, maybe it needs to be. 40 or 60 or no, it was 40, I believe, but you should double it, make it a, a thicker, you know, so you, uh, so what you're trying to do is mitigate the factors associated with it. Um, but again, on paying for it, say we, if, if we're even considering removing it, uh, the costs exponential cost of that, we'd have to have federal and state support on that. We couldn't afford to do that ourselves. With regards to capping it, uh, we do have that environmental rebate fund that we've uh, you know accumulated over $20 million, and that was for the future of knowing that we'd have to mitigate this issue. Um, you know, we'd prefer that it was a lot, the, both options were closer in price, then you really could have that uh, strong of debate. But with that wide spread of uh, financial expense, uh, and plus the um, you know, the potential um, 
parameters with regards to the risk associated with moving it, uh, that seems to outweigh uh, the other alternative. Early in the program, uh, a caller called in to mention that we have periodically removed coal ash from those ponds and transported it for disposal elsewhere because we've been using them for mm-hmm. decades, obviously, mm-hmm. they, and they right. fill up. And then at one point, it was even being used for infill in uh, in vacant properties around town that some of the coal ash was being uh, you know, put down to, to fill in holes when buildings were destroyed and then, and then covered with uh, you know, a, a layer of topsoil on that. Is that, in fact, accurate? And what are the, the long-term ramifications of all that? Well, I know the, uh, I think part of that was used for asphalting. And so uh, as far as just taking ash and then dumping it in the ground, I don't think that happened. I'd have to you know, defer to Doug Brown and, uh, with CWP, but we'll find out. But I know the byproduct can be used for asphalt material. So I would think that it's more in that scenario that you use it as a byproduct, uh, adding other uh, you know chemicals to it or whatever you need to do to uh, make that a usable uh, pro- byproduct of the ash. We've got a lot more to talk about with Mayor Jim Langfelder this afternoon. We are just getting started here, so stick around more on the way. Once a month, the mayor checks in and spends a full hour with us. And uh, this month, no exception, there is plenty to talk about. We had a, uh, a pretty busy uh, Springfield City Council Committee of the Whole meeting this week, Mayor, with uh, several issues that came up. Uh, I'm, I, I've asked you this multiple times over the years. Uh, I'm going to come back again. I'm still a skeptic on this, but we're now a step closer to approving the plan to not only upgrade the downtown traffic signals, which I I think everybody Mm -hmm. would say, hey, that's a great idea, but also to change the traffic patterns on a couple of downtown streets. A couple to begin with, more could follow. So this would affect Adams between 6th and 9th and uh, most of 4th Street from South Grand all the way up to pretty much the the, the new uh, YMCA up there. Help me again. Uh, be, help <laughs> I didn't me answer the question I after, asked before. <laughs> well, you, no, you, you've tried, but I, you know, I've driven my whole life on these right, one-way right, streets. Right. I'm familiar with it. Explain to me again how this makes traffic move better. What are the advantages, mm-hmm. and, and how do you stop people from killing me? Because I'm not expecting a car to come right. at me on Adams when I've always just driven the one direction on Adams my right, entire life. Right. Well, I've had the situation where you have someone pull into a one-way street, and so, uh, but with regard regards to the traffic, uh, how's it move better? Um, I'm not advocating that. What it does is the traffic pattern along 4th Street is so low that you can make it a two-way, lane, uh, two-way street. And the value of that, I learned it from a merchant, uh, one, uh, I think it was a uh, retailer, said, I would never locate on a one-way street because you're only getting you know one traffic site going. And so um, they always advocated having two ways. Uh, but with regards to 4th Street, with all everything that is happening or potentially will happen, you know, you have the uh, mansion there, Lucanins has redeveloped the Y block. With that development, you move up towards the ramp. We're going to have to pull that down the Adams Street, and it leads into the YMCA. Uh, turning that into a two-way makes sense, uh, because it will connect the uh, downtown with the Enos Park area, the medical district, and it you know slows down traffic. But um, again, I think from the whole uh, aesthetics of downtown, the uh, you know making it a more walkable and uh, bikeable corridor uh, or area, I should say, uh, it just makes sense from that standpoint. I and Fourth Street will be the next developed corridor uh, with the most activity uh, because you know you have U of I looking at uh, UIS, I should say downtown expanding their presence, but there's a lot of 
possibilities there, and we're looking forward to it becoming the next really uh, busy corridor next to 5th and 6th Street. Adams is uh, a fairly uh, active corridor there. You've mm-hmm. got uh, the BOS Center. You've got the dispensary. You've got recycled records and a couple of businesses in that block of Adams. You're heading right down toward the old Capitol Plaza, and that would become also two-way there. But it's not, I mean, it's it's a somewhat wide road, but you've got angled parking on one side, uh, parallel parking on the other side. You might need to have turn lanes in there. Do we have the, the space to use that? It's just a three-block stretch to use it effectively, and, and what do we gain from doing that? Yeah, on that, it uh, really uh, turns it into the small-town feel in a way, where you uh, drive around the square, things of that nature. But with that downtown feel, uh, I think that's one aspect. But with the uh, two-way on Adams, the part that you're in particularly discussing, um, you know, I think... Uh, I think it, there, you're not going to see much of a disruption. You'll still have parking available there. You'll have the ability to go two ways. I know a lot of individuals, they are frustrated when you have to drive. You know, it's all about convenience. have to drive another block or whatever and circle around. And uh, so, from that aspect, I think it allows a little added convenience. But it'll uh, really... Uh, bring forward a better dynamic, I think, with regards to, uh, you know, how you move around downtown. To, to what you said, though, about the business person who said he wouldn't want to locate on a, on mm-hmm. a one-way street because, you're, you know, you've only got traffic coming at you from one direction then, uh, a lot of our businesses are on 5th and 6th streets downtown. Mm-hmm. Are you envisioning someday we would turn <laughs> those into two-way streets? Uh, no, that because the traffic, I mean, the amount of traffic those carry. And I think you'll... Um, if that ever happened been way in the future, but you see it in Chicago and larger cities where you do have uh, that dynamic of changing the traffic patterns uh, to try to stimulate additional activity. But for 5th and 6th Street, those are more for moving the traffic. Um, you know, I, I don't see that forthcoming in the near future, if at all. What would be next then? Uh, Monroe? Uh, Washington? What, what do you think? Well, actually, we were looking at 7th Street, but with the uh, Lincoln Home area, you know, they're afraid of any disruption of, uh, you know, changing the dynamics what do you uncover and so from that historic standpoint we'll leave it as is but we are looking at uh, giving it more of a road diet we're hopefully uh, possibly pulling in you know having the diagonal parking uh, people you know they some people don't like to parallel park at all uh, but really uh, changing that dynamic because when you cross 7th street it's like you know you have people speeding down there all the time and it's not a well-traveled a- area but uh, we would look to slow that down with regards to maybe bump outs, but uh, again, diagonal parking. So you, when you're walking from Obed's and Isaac or William Vans over to the visitor center of Lincoln's home, in that area, people feel safe in crossing that corridor. Same with the, over the realtors by Centennial Plaza. Same thing, you know, you're crossing Fifth Street and that's, you know, it's a busy corridor. How can you uh, slow that traffic down? That's what we probably look towards more in slowing it where the pedestrian traffic is so they feel safe in crossing over to the mansion block area. Uh, another big issue that affects the utilization of downtown is, of course, parking. Mm-hmm. And we have had free downtown metered parking since the start of the pandemic, more than a year and a half now. It's been extended through the end of the year, but the end of the year is rapidly approaching. This is our last regularly scheduled visit in this year. Any decisions yet on what happens come January 1st of 2022 as far as the meters downtown? Well, the meters, what's driving it uh, 
for a large degree as the uh, workforce. And, you know, the state's not back at work. I know they're, uh, you know, gradually coming back, but it's a few days a week. Uh, but that's been an impact to private sector, you know, the individuals that own the parking lots and uh, paid parking. So we've heard from those individuals saying, you know, you st- need to start enforcing the uh, meters again because they're not parking. They're just parking on the streets doing musical chairs. So we will take a look at it because what we want to do is have a uh, solution, uh, you know, and whatever that is, we move forward with it this spring with regards to the meters and moving forward in that direction because uh, we have a couple of options. Uh, I'm a firm believer in convenience. If you're in, in putting the meters in, again, that or keeping them in, it's all about moving traffic. How do you move that? And so we're looking at either an app. I'm a firm believer. I don't use apps. I use credit card. I think you should have a multiple way to pay for the meters. But uh, time will tell. But we definitely want to work with downtown Springfield and uh, come forward with that potential solution and uh, bring it to the council for approval uh, prior to the spring. You come back a lot to the smart meters. It, it mm-hmm. really, it sounds to me like like it's inevitable we'll be back to paid metered parking at some point it's just a question of when and that timing may in fact depend upon how quickly you can uh, acquire those smart meters and, and go in that direction would, would that be accurate to say that uh, well on those uh, you can switch out the heads we're gonna have to do something with those and uh, I, I view it myself as a pilot where you know the busy corridors fifth sixth Street where you have the retailers fourth Street uh, they may be the ones to have the smart meters and then uh, uh, as you build out, because they are, you know, it's they come with the cost. As you build out, the less trafficked areas would have the regular meters, if at all, or how do you move in that direction? But that's what we're trying to do, the data analysis on all of that. Uh, but am I, again, mistaken in sounding like it, it, we're going to be back to paid meters at some point? It's really just a question of, of when and, and how you phase it back that's in? That's a good possibility, yeah. I would say, uh, yeah, if you want me to, for myself, I think it uh, will be... Uh, coming back to what degree that's what we need to determine I mean, what what reaction do you get from the public because i got to tell you it, it's nice to go down and be able to park and not have to plug a meter and right. not have to worry about it. and you know I, I know that we're supposed to still follow the time limit and i've, I've never stayed over mm-hmm. at a meter in the free parking but it, you know it's, it's nice like hey i get to park and it doesn't cost me anything like like when i go and shop at other places there are you getting any kind of feedback from the public saying hey we love the free parking or yeah, we're okay with that bringing the meters back? What what do you hear? Yeah, that's what I'd uh, have to circle back around with uh, downtown Springfield after the Christmas time. And uh, every year we make it free parking for the Christmas time. So what you're asking, do can you extend it all the year round? And I think that remains to be seen based on the workforce dynamic downtown. And then if we have additional housing, uh, how's that impact things? Checking in with Springfield Mayor Jim Langfelder for his monthly hour-long sit-down with us, talk to the mayor. And we're still reacting to some of the action at this week's Springfield City Council Committee of the Whole meeting, several measures that were advanced for final votes this coming Tuesday, including a contract for license plate reader cameras. Uh, Mayor, uh, walk us through this. Uh, uh, Some folks, this has the specter of Big Brother to it and (laughs) eyes looming everywhere and tracking vehicles uh, going all over town. Uh, Why would this be a good investment for the city? Well, I always feel the same way, too. You know, (laughs) when you have that, I actually lived in a subdivision. They introduced uh, a camera system, and that was the first thing that came up. This was a 
few years back. Uh, but with regards to this, uh, you know, it wouldn't uh, do any type of identification of drivers, anything of that nature. It's specifically for the license plate and the vehicle. But why and is make that... and model, you can detect right. that. But it can right. also pick up bicycles, motorcycles, right. even mm-hmm. pedestrians in an area. Right. right. And so, uh, from a security standpoint, you can't beat it. And it'll be all throughout Springfield. Uh, I think we're looking at 83 cameras. Mm-hmm. And that could change because we're looking at uh, private sector might uh, want to install them. Actually, I had a conversation with the chief the other day. I said we should use it at our power plant and our substations around that area. And then if we had planned cameras, we could move them out to other areas. And so it might uh, go a little bit uh, greater than the 83. Uh, but with regards to how that can help, um, you know, if there's a burglary happening, and we've had it happen in like Sherwood, where you had a series of burglaries happening, uh, you could actually pinpoint if someone could identify a vehicle. Uh, uh, you see that through, it's usually limited entry and exit points in those subdivisions. Yeah. So that could help in those in- situations. It's helped in other cities that way. But for our gunshot technology and shot spotter, that's where it really could help um, with regards to uh, car fleeing or anything of that nature. And the police don't want to endanger pedestrians by any sort, so they could pull off of those uh, type of incidents. And then you can hopefully catch it on camera and uh, get the identification of the vehicle itself. It was pointed out we we recently had a very serious hit-and-run accident right. where there's video where we saw the front of a, of a mm-hmm. vehicle, but there's no license plate on the front. But if you knew what type of vehicle it was and you had pictures of that vehicle going through with a rear license plate, you'd have the vehicle. You'd have your suspect then at that point. Now, there was discussion uh, during the debate on this on Tuesday night about an opt-out provision. That, that now, Do you know how that works? I mean, can, can individuals just say, I don't want you to record my license plate number uh, off of your cameras and, and is that something that citizens can just say take take me out of your system well that was more towards the private sector okay. you know if like a walmart put them up or something of that nature uh but uh no that's that was news to me as far as that goes i was taking it more on the private sector side if they wanted to um opt or modify it to their um uh, Usage, they could, but again, that they would have to pay for the twenty five hundred dollars insulate or annual fee. The installation is two hundred forty dollars, but they could do that to expand the city's program, and then they could uh, make a determination of how they want to utilize it. But as a, as a neighborhood association, if I'm a member of that group, I could go to that neighborhood association and say, "Don't record my license plate." Or yeah, I'm or, not sure how that would work on that. Yeah, that's that I'd was have the one to, part I yeah. had a big question about. With right, that, so I'm I, curious we need to, a little more detail on that. But from the city standpoint, the ones we put in. And there's no opt-in, opt-out feature. Uh, this is coming, as you noted, amid ongoing discussion about ShotSpotter and mm-hmm. whether we're getting our money's worth uh, for that. Some of the aldermen have raised questions about it. And I know that company has been talking to to aldermen uh, about this. You in the past have, have deferred to Chief Winslow, who is still a, very much a big supporter of, uh, of ShotSpotter. Are you still as sold on the technology as you've been all along? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, you know, we have instances where it's without a doubt informs the officers. Uh, so they go into a situation with more information than uh, if they uh, hadn't got a call or if they, even they did get a call. And there's been uh, times, uh, specific times where officers responded and they got a call, you know, minutes later or maybe 10 minutes later. And actually, 
the caller thought the sound of the gunshot came from a different area where ShotSpotter actually specified the point of, uh, you know, that the incident was happening. So uh, the other situation it's helped with is with regards to uh, solving crime, you know, because they recover the ammunition. And then uh, you use uh, the NIBRS detection with regards to the ballistic study of the ammunition, and then uh, that's helped uh, resolve some of the crimes. But if you want the details, either, you know, one of the command staff, Josh Stunkel, or, uh, you know, uh, Chief uh, Winslow or Assistant Chief Scarlett could really speak in details of the specific incidents where uh, it proved uh, beneficial. But without a doubt, uh, you know, I know the other argument is we need more police on the streets. Everybody would want more police on the streets. But uh, when you cannot put 30 more officers on there, what we're talking about is probably one and a half officers, um, and it's worth the technology because it benefits all our police officers. Just uh, not having one person could not make that dramatic of an impact. Speaking of Police Chief Winslow, any change in his status? We've had the uh, <laughs> ongoing discussions that you know he is you know m- moving toward the exit uh, and has tried to a couple of times. Uh, what where does things stand with that right now? Well, uh, I'm glad he stayed on. You know, as far as that goes, because uh, especially the times we're in, these uncertain times, ushered us through uh, the challenging times that we had the April shooting uh, and uh, a lot of activity happening when the summer was coming forward and I asked him to stay through the year and he's done that which we appreciate but um, you know I'll let him decide when that time is where he'd like to ride off into the sunset so to speak but uh, you know he's worked well with the command staff and you know um, that uh, time frame I'm sure that window's shortening uh, but you know we have the upcoming budget and uh, he's helped prepare us for that and how we move forward to the next fiscal year. Uh, I want to come back to the budget in, in just mm-hmm. a moment here. One other issue that was before the city council uh, this week had to do with a request for TIF district dollars, a couple of hundred thousand to uh, to shore up and make some emergency repairs to uh, a structure called the John Taylor Home, mm-hmm. which has uh, you know important place in, in local black history, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in its role as a trade school and a school that taught STEM uh, courses mm-hmm. before we even knew that term uh, to young African-American boys uh, back in the early part of the of the 20th century. Dominic Watson of the Springfield Black Chamber of Commerce and other groups are, are trying to preserve this as part of an effort to uh, to hang on to some of these portions of early black history in Springfield. And there's a bit of pushback from Alderman because there's still some murky details in, in all of this and also because they're not sure it complies with the, the rules that have been set up for TIF fund expenditures. Uh, is this something that would require bending the rules and should the rules be bent in this situation yeah on the rules themselves i know them very well because i'm the one that put them in place you know we put in the Economic Community Development Commission. Uh, that's so the uh, group could vet TIP projects as they come forward. They vetted this. And, uh, you know, it w- wasn't a unanimous vote, actually. One person said, well, I'd like more financial information on it. The challenge we have, but it is a permittable expense by TIF. Where the council members were coming from, typically we say, and this is a rule we put in place, or policy uh I put in place with regards to a third of the project costs would come from TIF, and then the rest you'd have to find the funding for. And so we're just 
talking about stabilization and uh, do the short period, they need more time to find the other resources, which uh, one of those could be community development block grant funds, but right now they're not to that point. So we want to use the TIP dollars to do the stabilization of about $217,000, and then the rest of the funding for the restoration or moving in that uh, direction would come from other sources. Uh, again, you know, uh, it's estimated to be close to a million-dollar project, so $217,000 is below that third of a threshold. But but it's still a bit of a crapshoot because they mm-hmm. don't have the funding in place, and they don't necessarily have a, a, a detailed plan on how to actually convert this into something that would be a tourist destination that would draw people in, that would create a return on that investment. So is it a, you know, a, a risky proposition to say, okay, here's $200,000 just to shore up a building when we don't exactly know how that building is going to be utilized or whether it can be utilized effectively? Well, I think... Uh one is they are utilizing it right now for tourism. You know, there was a bike tour that went to east side sites, historic sites. And so what we have to determine as city leaders is what's really important to us. And we've always said history is very important in that particular project in itself. Uh, we were hoping to do a living history unit using cannabis grant. Unfortunately, it wasn't selected, but we were going to bring it back to the trades school type where you'd have uh, Calvin Pitts of uh, Southtown Training Institute. You have Jermaine Ward who has his own construction training going on, and then William Bishop, who has uh, the labor side of things, and he has a facility on 11th Street, having those groups work together to preserve this but use it as a living history uh, that we do downtown. So uh, it will happen. I think uh, it has value with regards to the historic context of Springfield, uh, especially what you mentioned being the early trade school for uh, black young men. And so uh, that's what we'd like to tap into and there's plenty of resources on the federal side state side all right we're back just a couple of minutes left here with springfield mayor jim langfelder and much more to cover than we have time for but let's get through as much of this as we can quickly uh mayor the budget process is underway as you have talked about here any surprises so far pleasant or otherwise uh, how's it shaping up well right now uh, the departments are figuring out their budgets we haven't met one-on-one yet but that'll be coming up this month and then uh, january is usually when we have the hearings through the city council uh, one bit but of- we, I think we'll be in pretty good shape, but uh, time will tell. The important thing is the American Rescue Plan dollars, how we're going to allocate those, and that'll be the most important discussion along with the normal budget. You know, we talked about that last time about uh, whether it can be evenly split like some mm-hmm. aldermen have called for, mm-hmm. and you said we need to maybe have a more targeted approach. But again, obviously, we'll be seeing more details on that. Budget books in aldermen's hands by by the end of this month, do you think? Will they well, have before New Year's Day? Or? That's always the target uh, by the end or first part of the next year, so it'll be within that time frame. One bit of good news in recent weeks has been the approval of that uh, big federal infrastructure bill that's going to bring a lot of money here into Illinois. One of the areas that could really impact Springfield is in funding to replace uh, lead water service lines. And we know that's that's a, an issue here in some mm-hmm. neighborhoods in Springfield. Uh, do you have a sense yet as to how much we're going to get and whether it's going to really uh, completely rectify that problem and get those lead pipes out of use? Well, uh, ask CWLP to come up with a plan, and we'll have to apply for those funds. It'll be a competitive grant process, so to my knowledge right now, anyway. So that's what we intend to do, but come up with that plan to uh, address it once and for all, but uh, move forward in that direction. Uh, there was a discussion 
the council meeting this week on uh, homelessness and mm-hmm. a couple of aldermen raising concerns that uh, they don't feel like maybe we're getting quite as much as we are uh, contracting and paying for with Salvation Army for the overflow uh, shelter there. Uh, can you uh, bring us up to, to speed on that? Are you satisfied with the services we're getting so far? Do we need to tweak that? Well, I think it's the process. It's worked as a true overflow where they want individuals to go to Helping Hands, contact ministries and other agencies. And then once those are full, you use the uh, Salvation Army. That's been the challenge. So uh, Captain Jeff and Josh Sabo of the Heartland Continuum of Care will come and give an update. But the one thing is someone's left out in the cold. We want to call immediately so you can address it that night, not wait till a city council meeting to bring it up. The update on the status of the homeless outreach officer for the city? Uh, we did have, uh, we're running into the same issue everybody else is. We had three applicants and uh, two didn't show up for the interview. Uh-huh. One did, and they ended up uh, getting a other position uh, with Memorial, I think, Behavior Health. So uh, we're at it again and trying to fill that position. Okay. Uh, what's the latest on the fire department contract? We've talked about that, and I know one of the issues is those minimum staffing levels. Are we any closer to a resolution on that? Well, we've uh, picked an arbitrator, is my understanding. So uh, hopefully we'll come to some conclusion on that because everybody wants to move forward. The real key is how. what's the new structure of the police? fire department look like uh, post-pandemic. And that's what we're striving towards. Uh, last time we talked, you were uh, working on trying to uh, name a new economic development director. Is that announcement imminent? Uh, well, uh, I did offer it to somebody, and they're contemplating it. Um, but it all comes down to timing of that particular position, if it fits for them. 30 seconds left, Mayor. We've seen the biggest one-day number of new COVID cases today that we've seen in more than a year. Uh, are you thinking uh, we need to do anything different here in the weeks ahead to try to make sure we don't get another big surge that creates real problems? Well, I was at a store recently, and they only half the people probably had masks. I encourage everybody to mask up and, uh, I think, get their vaccinations and move in that direction. I 